Father, we pray that you would now teach us what it is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would convince our hearts that it's so. We pray, too, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, through your Word, help us to know what it means to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We pray that you would liberate us from the tendency to set our minds on things of the flesh. And we pray, Lord, that you would make it experientially true for us that the power of indwelling sin is overcome by the power of your indwelling spirit. And Lord, we pray that this would have all kinds of good fruit flowing out of the ministry of your spirit through your word in the name of Jesus in our lives. Amen. I don't watch zombie movies, but I did see a trailer about a zombie movie. That's all I've seen. I've seen a trailer and one little clip of this zombie movie, okay? In this movie, this zombie comes back to life. And, and you, know what a, you know what a zombie is, right? A zombie is a corpse that is somehow walking around living. And uh, Jill and I had the, had the opportunity to discuss this with, with some, some people on Friday. And, and I was surprised at how much these people knew about zombies. I, I asked the question, uh, what is it that zombies want to do? And this lady to, our, to my left says, they want to eat your brains. Well, I didn't know that. But, but I knew that zombies do want to kill, right? Zombies want to kill. They want to take. They are entirely self-centered. And, and the reason I'm talking to you about zombies is because I think there's a kind of parallel between the way that people are who are not regenerated and the way that zombies are. You're... you're You've got someone who's spiritually dead, insensitive to God, without regard for God, and only interested in themselves. That's what a zombie is. And that's what somebody is who is dead in their trespasses. They, they are only concerned about what they want. And in this passage that we're looking at today, Romans 8, 1 through 11, we're, we're going to read about how people like that can be acquitted of their crimes and given this new life. And in that movie, it's called Warm Bodies. I'm not recommending it to I haven't seen it, so I'm not going to recommend it. In that movie, um, this, this dead person actually comes to, to life. And here's one of the lies of our culture. What brings that guy to life is, is this romantic love. So our culture wants us to believe that if you just find the right person you'll be made alive. The reality is what you need to be made alive is to know God. And there is a life-giving power that will make you new if you come to know the living God. So we're going to be looking this morning at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. 
And it's remarkable in this passage how often the word spirit begins to be used. Uh, Paul, he's been talking about things like the law and the flesh and sin, and, and he's used the word spirit some, but all of a sudden in Romans 8, it's almost like every other line, the word spirit, and, and most often it's the spirit of God that comes into view. As we approach Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, uh, we, I, I would invite you to look back with me and, and just sort of take a run up to Romans 8 by getting a feel for the, the things that Paul has been discussing in his letter to the Romans to this point, because when he starts into Romans 8, even though he starts into a kind of new section of the letter, he's still talking to the same people, and, and I think that the way that this was intended is Paul intended for the letter to be brought to the church, a gathering like this, and the guy that brought the letter was going to stand up in front of the congregation and read it aloud to the congregation, which means that as they came to Romans 8, they would have just heard Romans 5, 6, and 7. And, and so I'm, I want to highlight the big ideas from Romans 5, 6, and 7 that take us into Romans 8. And the first one that I want to draw your attention to is Romans 5, verse 20, where he, Paul is addressing the fact that um, a lot of his contemporaries, particularly his Jewish contemporaries probably, and, and he knows this from long experience, talking to them about Jesus, talking to them about knowing God, he knows that they think wrongly, that the law is God's ultimate and final program for salvation. And Paul is explaining to them the true function of the law. And he says in Romans 5.20, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And he knows how people are going to respond to that. They're going to think, oh, well, if grace abounds where sin increases, why don't I sin some more to make it where grace increases? And that's what he takes up in chapter 6. And his answer to that, if you want to look at chapter 6, verse 6, his answer to that is, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we don't want to sin more to cause grace to abound. We're actually dead to sin through faith in Christ and and by being baptized with Jesus. Look at 6.4. This is what we celebrated this morning. 6.4, 6.4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. And then Paul talks about how Jesus was raised from the dead. He's given a resurrection body. And, and in Romans 6.4, look at what he says. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Jesus experiences this resurrection from the dead life. And people that believe in Jesus experience newness of life. And I think what this means is the life of the resurrection, the life of the age to come has taken hold in us now. Even though our bodies are not yet raised from the dead, our bodies are not yet renewed and glorified, yet the life of the spiritual life of the future day, uh, the the eternity future, that has taken hold in us now. And then the next topic Paul takes up is, having said in 6.14, you're not under law, But under grace, the question in 6.15 is, okay, should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And Paul's answer there is, no. You become enslaved to whatever it is that you present yourself to obey. So if you present yourself to sin, you'll become enslaved to sin. And so you want to present yourself to God as servants of God to bear fruit for righteousness. And that leads us into chapter 7. And in chapter 7... 
Paul again contends, 7-4, he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. So he's, he's explaining the role of the law. The law's role was not to save us. The law's role, actually, if you look at 7, um, he says in, right, right here in 7-5, he says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. So the law actually exposed our sinfulness to us. And then he goes into this agonized recounting of his experience. Look at 7.14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now notice he doesn't say, I'm in the flesh. He says, I'm of the flesh. And I think what he's saying is, even though this life of the age to come, has taken hold in me, my body hasn't yet been resurrected. I've not yet been given a resurrected body. So Paul is saying, I'm still in this mortal body. Look at 6.12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So you're still in the mortal body with wicked inclinations, wicked appetites, wicked desires, but this new life has taken hold in you. And that results in... Paul saying things like what he says in 7.15, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. And then this leads in 7.17 to him saying, so it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And Romans 7 ends in, in verse 25 with Paul thanking God for deliverance and, and rescue through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he says at the end of 725, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now this review, this review of Romans 5, 6, and 7 was to bring out the way that Paul has been talking about the law and the flesh and sin. And I, I just want to put the, the sequence together for you so that hopefully as we read Romans 8, this will really open up for us, and it'll really make sense for us. So think about, think about the way that the, the process goes. God gave the commandment to Adam. When the commandment was given, a, a wicked desire was provoked. And this is the way that Paul explains it, it also happened for him. Again, 7-5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So the law is given, and then, and then Paul explains the role of sin. He says, for instance, in, in 7, uh, 7.11, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So you've got law, which meets flesh, and then sin seizes the commandment, and then comes the, the, ver the verdict that's rendered at the judgment. And what follows from the verdict is condemnation. And then after condemnation follows punishment. That's, that's your sequence. Law, sin, judgment, condemnation, punishment, death. So look at Romans 8.1. It's amazing that Paul can say these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the idea that Paul is going to explain in the first four verses of Romans 8. 
He's going to explain how it is that even though the law came to us and we began to desire wicked things and we did those wicked things and we should rightly be judged and condemned, if we're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he starts, look at what he says here in verse 2. He introduces a new law. The law of the spirit of life. Now, now, he's going to contrast this. Look at the end of the verse. He's going to speak at the end of Romans 8, 2 of the law of sin and death. And I think what he's doing is he's setting these two things in contrast. The law of the spirit of life stands over against the law of sin and death. So think about the way that these things work. The, the power of sin takes the good commandment and uses it to kill us because we transgress the commandment and we fall under God's judgment and we're banished from God's presence and we incur his condemnation. But in God's mercy, in God's mercy through Christ, look at what he says here in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life. So the power of God's spirit sets people free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there's a new power that stands over against the power of sin. And that new power doesn't result in death, it results in life. Because the way, the, the, the way this works, flowing out of the Old Testament, and, and this continues into the New, when you transgress God's commandments, you incur God's displeasure, and you become, in a, in a, in a sense, unclean. So, so the, the concepts of, of, of sin and uncleanness and defilement and death, these all go together. And you can think about the way that, that we recoil even from the mention of zombies. They're disgusting, aren't they? It's, 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 it's defiled. I, I, honestly, I even question whether I should use that example because I didn't want to defile your minds with the, your imagination calling up a dead corpse walking. It's disgusting. It's gross. It's unclean. The law of the spirit of life, verse 2, has set you free. Set you free. This is one of the ideas that goes with salvation. Because when you sin, it's, it's as though what happens is the authorities come and they put the cuffs on you and they haul you before the court and then you are no longer free. You are no longer able to do what you want. You are now under the wrath and you will face the punishment. You will face the consequences of your rightful condemnation. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 1, in Christ Jesus, the law of, of the spirit of life has set you free. Years and years ago, I had this dream. It was, it was one of those very vivid dreams that you wake up for and wake up from and, and, and you just feel an enormous sense of relief that what you were just dreaming has not really happened. In this dream, I don't know what the crime was that I had committed, but I had committed some crime and I had been arrested and I had been brought before the judge and the jury had rendered the verdict and I was going to prison. And you know, all these, my, all these thoughts are going through my mind. What are my parents going to think? What is my sister going to think of me? What the rest of my life I am going to be locked up behind bars. And then I woke up and I look around and I'm I'm not a criminal. 
I'm not going to prison. I'm free. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, Paul is going to answer a question that most condemned criminals might not even ask. And, and, but nevertheless, it's a question that we should ask. And the question is this. If the criminal goes free, how can the judge be just? If people who ought to be condemned are not condemned, how can we trust the judge? How can we trust the judge to do right? And Paul sets about answering that question in verse 3. He says there in verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Now let's just think about how this relates to chapter 7 for a moment. Verse 5 of chapter 7, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Those are the concepts that Paul is working with when he says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So God has brought about a salvation that the law could not achieve because of our sinful flesh. And then he explains how he did it there in verse 3. He did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now let's just work on a couple of these concepts here. You, you know this concept by sending his own son. This is... This is uh, John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ever existing from eternity past, together in heaven, entirely united, the, the Son begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten, not made, God sent him into the world. And how did God send him? Look at verse 3 there. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Was Jesus a human being? Absolutely. He was fully human. Did Jesus have a sinful, fallen... Uh, did Jesus suffer from the fall of Adam? I think this verse says no. I think this verse says that Jesus came in a way that was like Adam was prior to his sin. And I think that's why Paul inserts that word likeness, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Was Jesus tempted? Yes, he was tempted in every way, like as we, yet without sin. But did he have this sinful flesh? No, I don't know. I think Paul says, no, he did not have this sinful flesh. And then the next question, why did God send Jesus? Look at the next words. For sin. God sent his perfect and pure son for sin, to deal with our sin. So if, if you ever ask yourself, um, what did it take to secure my redemption? The answer is right there in that verse. It took the eternal second person of the Godhead. And if you ever ask yourself, how has God shown to, to his people that he loves them? The answer is right in that verse. He did not spare his own son. He, this is the way that God loved the world. And this is the degree of God's love. And then the next phrase, 
So Romans 8, 3 in the middle, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And if we ask, where did God condemn sin in the flesh? The answer is, God condemned sin in the flesh as Christ died on the cross. So we have to read Romans 8, 1 together with Romans 8, 3. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 1, because God condemned sin in the flesh as Christ died on the cross, verse 3. That's the only reason there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has not simply wiped the record clean and acted as though it is not there. No, God condemned sin. Our transgressions, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, our transgressions were condemned in the flesh, in Christ, on the cross. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So the necessary consequence of our transgressions has been con condemned in the flesh as Christ died on the cross. And there's more. There's another, I think, layer of meaning of this. And, and it's the way that the word sin has been functioning as a power all through these, these, these chapters. You know, so for instance, in 6.12, Paul says, let not sin therefore reign. It's as though sin is this dark lord, this Voldemort-like king who exercises dominion over all those who have fallen. And Jesus, as he died, condemned that power. And that power got traction because of our flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. So sin and the flesh are overwhelmed as God sends Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. So this, this is the glorious gospel. It is because Christ died on the cross that we can be fully and completely forgiven. It is because Christ died on the cross that we can say that if you are in Christ Jesus, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? It means that you have turned away from your your zombie-like desire to serve only yourself and to, to come into every situation and think, now, you probably don't think this, how do I eat these people's brains? You probably don't think that, but you probably do think, how can I benefit from this? What do I stand to gain from this interaction? How can these people help me in my agenda for my life? How can I make myself look good? All of this self-exaltation, self-concern, self-serving, lustful pride and greed and anger when our pride is not serviced the way we want it to be, all of that, there's no condemnation for it because Christ was condemned in our place. And then, and then there's a purpose statement in verse 4. Verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Uh, I may have mentioned this recently. Uh, I heard a, a guy say, he said, you know what the Old Testament is with all its law? It's really a love manual. Did I say that last week? I can't remember. I don't, okay, great. Uh, praise the Lord. I'm not repeating myself. The Old Testament is a love manual. What is it teaching you to love? It's teaching you how to love God. 
And who, is, who else is it teaching you to love? It's teaching you how to love your neighbor. That's what all of those requirements in the Old Testament law are about. Uh, this morning, we, we had a baptism, praise the Lord. I got here, and Anna says to me, she says, is there anything you need for the baptism this morning? And I said, oh, I forgot my swim trunks. <laughs> I got to go home and get them. And so, so I jump in the car, and in the car, I'm listening to that section in Exodus, uh, chapters 25 through 31, that are going through all the instructions for the tabernacle. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the way that God is calling his people to love him. He wants them to be so concerned with him that they pay careful attention to these details. That's what that's about. And, 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 and then I start thinking about the way that, that I'm often trying to instruct my children. When you see things that belong to you that are on the stairs, please pick them up and carry them to the top of the stairs. And the way that my kids can love me is by paying attention to the details. And when they walk by, they don't say, oh, dad doesn't matter to me. Mom doesn't matter to me. God doesn't matter. No, they say, you know, I'd like to leave that there, but I love my dad. And so I'm going to do what he said. And I'm going to notice. I'm going to think of something other than myself. And I'm going to notice this and pick it up and carry it to the top of the stairs. Praise the Lord if that began to happen. <laughs> It'd be so magnificent. So what Paul is saying here is if this is true of you, if there is no condemnation, and if you're in Christ Jesus, you now feel a desire to love God and to love your neighbor. So that verse 4 the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And, and those, those two concepts, walking according to the flesh versus walking according to the Spirit, this is what Paul is now going to develop in verses 5 through 8. But before, before we go on, let me just offer you a, an application growing out of this. And, and, and it's really two, two, two statements. Um, in December of 2017, I challenged Kenwood Baptist Church to memorize Romans 8. Because I think that this passage is, this, this whole chapter, it, it's like, it, it could be um, the most beautiful and significant chapter in the most important letter ever written in the history of of the world. And, and, you know, there are other passages that are just as significant, like Romans 3, 21 to 26. It's, uh, so it's hard to rank them. I can't rank them. But if you don't know these verses by heart, if you don't know this chapter, this would be a great place to start memorizing Scripture. So application number one, I think it'd be a great thing. If you don't know this passage, it'd be a great thing for you to commit this passage to memory. Application number two, if you are someone who, are, who is in Christ Jesus, can I just urge you to pursue the love of God and the love of neighbor? And in so doing, know that you will be fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. And if somebody asks you, what is the Old Testament really about? That's the answer. The Old Testament is really about loving God and loving your neighbor. So let's be about these things. Let's give ourselves to this. And what Paul is going to do, praise the Lord, is tell us how to do it in verses 5 through 8. So look at what he says here in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Let me think with you for just a moment about what it means to set your mind on either the things of the flesh or the things of the Spirit. It's as simple as what you think about. So let me just restate that with the words think about inserted. Those who live according to the flesh think about the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit think about the things of the Spirit. Now, Paul says in, an, in another place, the works of the flesh are obvious. And then he goes through this list of sins. And then he starts talking about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith or faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So those who, who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, on things like these, against which there is no law. There's no prohibition on gentleness or kindness or self-control. So what does it mean to think about or to set their minds on the things of the Spirit? Well, as I was, as I was talking with Jill about, about what, it, what it looks like and how, how it is that we actually begin to do this, particularly in the moment of temptation. So, you know, you're... You're, you're bopping along in life, and all of a sudden you're tempted to do something that isn't loving or that isn't self-controlled, uh, some indulgence of some wicked appetite. How is it that you overcome? And, and as I thought through this, you know, I think it's very difficult. I think it's very difficult, but it's easier, it's easier if you're more in, in practice, so to speak. And as I thought about what, it, what does it look like to be in practice, I thought about our brother Michael France, I'm going to say his name rightly. Um, when I met Mike, he told me his name was Mike France, and now uh, Michael France is what everybody else calls him, so that's what, that's what um, I'm going to try to call him. And I was thinking about Mike's role as a firefighter all these years, and I texted him this morning, and, and, um, and I asked him, as a firefighter, did you have a certain time limit under which you had to get suited up when the bell rang? And, and he texts back, yes, you got to be able to do it in two minutes. And then I'm, I'm thinking about what all goes into that. And, and, and I asked him, how long does it usually take somebody who's new to this? And he said, well, a new person, is, it's going to take them more than three minutes. And if you really get good at it, you can do it in other, under 60 seconds. So think about what goes into that. If you're really good at this, you know where the equipment is. You're familiar with how the equipment goes onto your body. You know how you need to position your feet to get one leg in and then the next leg in. You know how you want to you swing the, the shoulder strap over one shoulder then the other. You're accustomed to this, this pattern of behaviors. And I think setting the mind on the things of the Spirit is similar. Where, and, and then, you know, if you think about the bell going off in the middle of the night, and I was thinking about... The, the, the many nights that I know that Mike has spent at, Michael, has spent at the firehouse. And I, and, I, and I asked him this morning, I said, you know, those nights that you were at the firehouse, did you get good sleep? And he said, no, you don't really get good sleep because you know the bell could go off at any time and you got to be ready when the bell goes off. And I think that, that there's something analogous to this in trying to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We've got to be always thinking, I could be tempted and I want to serve the Lord. 
We gotta be all we gotta be familiar with the scriptures. We gotta be familiar with the practice of prayer. We gotta be familiar with walking as a Christian. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like strapping on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and having feet shod with the gospel of peace and having the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, the more comfortable you are with that armor, the easier it is to get into it. But if you're not comfortable with that armor, well, you might have time, but you might not too. And if the temptation comes and you're not familiar with the armor and you're not familiar with the process, that fire truck could leave you at the station. And the whole thing could burn down because you weren't ready. And, and what does that look like? Well, if Mike is at the firehouse, and Michael, sorry, if he's at the firehouse, and instead of being ready, and instead of being in practice, he's decided, I think I'm going to try to get to where I'm as good as Matt D'Amico on the piano. And he's over there at the firehouse banging away on the piano. And maybe he's watching a YouTube video. And maybe he doesn't even hear the bell go off. You, you see what I'm saying? If he's distracted by some other thing, he's not going to be ready. We've got to be people who recognize, who recognize, I can't live according to the flesh. I have to set my mind on the things of the Spirit. Look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. In the last couple of weeks, I've been listening to Corey Tinboom's Hiding Place. It's the first time I've ever, I've always heard stories from this book. It's the first time I've ever read it. It's fantastic. If you haven't read it, I would commend it to you. She, as you know, she participated in the Dutch underground. They were hiding Jews. And she anticipated being arrested. She thought she was probably going to be arrested. And friends of hers, even family members, had been arrested and had told her what it was like to be incarcerated and told her what she would need. And so she had prepared this prison bag. And in this bag, she had things like a toothbrush and toothpaste and soap and a warm blanket, necessary things that she knew the Nazis were not going to give her in a concentration camp. A Bible was in there. Well, at one point, when it came for her to be arrested, she was... She was actually sick, and she was in bed asleep. And she comes awake, and the, the hiding place in her house was actually in her room. And, and she, she sort of vaguely, dimly comes awake, and, and the people they're hiding come, are rushing through the room to get into the hiding place. And she then takes her prison bag, once they're all in, and she puts it in front of the panel, the door, the hidden door. And then in come the officers to arrest her. And she realizes, if I take that bag, it'll draw attention to where those people are hidden. And so they arrest her, and she leaves the bag. And then she talked about how she got into prison, and in prison, as she began to suffer, she was cold, as she began to long for the, the Bible that was in her bag, she talked about how she just couldn't let her mind go there. She would find herself yearning for that bag, desiring to have that bag, and she just could not... She could not let her mind go there. Verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death. If, if we, we, have, we have to be able to 
recognize if I set my mind on these things that I can't have, even good things, good things that God has blessed other people with, maybe that I was trying to provide for myself, if I set my mind on those things, it's going to mean wretchedness for me. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. She found that what she had to do was figure out ways to give thanks and to pray for the people around her. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot the mind that is set on the flesh is like a zombie. What you want to do is you want to kill, kill, steal, and destroy. And you are an enemy of God. And God's commandments are the bane of your existence. They are, they are what you are in rebellion against. And you're unable to submit to them. Now let's take verse 7 there. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile... And let's do opposites. Let's play the opposites game. What's the opposite of hostility? Love, right? So let's do this. Um, the mind that loves God, and I think we could say, is set on the Spirit. And how is the mind that is set on the things of the Spirit, the mind that loves God, how is it going to react to God's law? It's going to submit to it, isn't it? Because the law says, love God, love your neighbor. And there's going to be ability. So, hostility and love. Insubmissive rebellion, submissive cooperation. And then look at, look at what else it says there. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, the opposite of that is going to be pleasing God, isn't it? If your mind is set on the Spirit, and if you are, are embracing God's instructions to love Him and love others, and you're enabled by the power of the Spirit, you're going to be pleasing God. And then in verses 9 through 11, Paul talks about life in the Spirit. So having just said in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And I would just, I, I have to say this at this point. If you're here this morning, and you're not a believer in Jesus, these statements are about you. If you are not a believer in Jesus, it is not possible for you. You are not able to please God, and you will never succeed in your attempts to please God if you don't, if you don't trust Christ, because you are under condemnation. God is a holy God. He's a just God, and there will be punishment for the sin, and either Christ will bear it on your behalf or you will bear it. But if you are in the Spirit, you cannot please God. Well, how do you get from being... I'm sorry, if you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. How do you get from the one to the other? You turn. You turn from your hostility to God, your rejection of His law, and, and you embrace the goodness of God's teaching, and you embrace the provision of salvation that God has made in Christ. And for everyone who has done that, verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. I was struck this week as I studied this at the way that uh, chapter 7, verse 17 and 20 and 23 say, sin dwells in you, but now chapter 8, verse 9 says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
And then Paul says, now notice what he's just said, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, the Holy Spirit, then he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ. So I think we can say the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. So we're dealing with, this is a high and holy mystery, we're dealing with the Trinity here. Uh, You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of God, and He is the Spirit of Christ. But the Spirit is not Christ, and the Spirit is not the Father. It's a mystery. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you don't know God. But if the Holy Spirit has come and made you alive and taken up residence within you, you belong to Jesus. And then look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, now how is Christ in you? By means of the indwelling Spirit. Because though they are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are one God. And for the Spirit to be in you is for Christ to be in you. And it's through the presence of the indwelling Spirit that what Oliver read about earlier in the service, John 14, when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And he says, I'll ask the Father. He will send you another comforter and he will come. He is with you and he will be in you. And then he talks about how he says, I and the Father will come and we will make our home in you. So if you know God, you are indwelt by the triune God of the Bible. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, and Paul is speaking to where we are right now, and again, uh, verse 24 of chapter 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? Chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Chapter 8, verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, you have this new life of Christ in you, but your body hasn't yet been resurrected or glorified. The Spirit, and I think the ESV is correct that this is the Holy Spirit, is life because of righteousness, the righteousness of God in Christ that's imputed to us. Verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life, Paul is talking about our experience right now. Right now, the Holy Spirit within us is giving us spiritual life so that we actually do want to love God and love neighbor. But we have these dead bodies In verse 11, Paul is talking about the resurrection from the dead. Notice the focus on resurrection in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Paul's talking about the resurrection body. He's talking about the day that you won't be a zombie anymore. In that movie, Warm Bodies, I I watched one clip on, on YouTube. I was trying to figure out if I was representing this movie rightly, and honestly, I don't know if I am or not. I think I am, but I've got a limited awareness of it. But in, that, in this one clip that I saw on YouTube, it's remarkable. There's a baptism scene. The, the, guy, the, the zombie who has been coming to life, he's at the bottom of this pool of water. And of course, 
you know, they're idolaters, so it's not God that brings him up to life. It's the girl. It's the, you know, the, the, the love interest. But she goes down to the bottom of the water, and she brings him up, and, all, and he's alive now. It, it's, just a, it's just an imitation of the true story, the Christian story, where, where the dead come to life, and it's through the experience of baptism that you're buried with, I mean, this is not what the movie is saying, but this is what I'm saying. You're buried with Christ in baptism and then raised to walk in newness of life. And then the guy actually gets shot. And it looks like he gets shot in the heart, but he doesn't die. Uh, maybe that's how it goes. I don't know. In the resurrection, death will never prevail again. In the resurrection, we will be, those who, who are in Christ Jesus, will be raised to enjoy the glory of God with, with these bodies that are able, finally, to walk in freedom and to reign with Christ in a new heaven and new earth. That's our hope. We hope for the day when we will be what we shall be, what we should be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because you, by sending your son, condemned sin in the flesh and did what the law couldn't do for us. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be like Corey Ten Boom and help us, Lord, to set our minds what we need to set our minds on, the things of the Spirit. And Lord, make us Make us like Michael with his fireman's outfit, able to get into it quickly, able to take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and stand against all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So Lord, help us to commit ourselves to knowing you, to walking with you, to agreeing with you about what is good and evil to stocking our minds with the scriptures. And Lord, we pray that you would cause this straight and narrow path to be easier and easy, easier for us. Not because it's not any less steep or any less narrow, but because by your spirit, through the power of your word, our feet are like hinds feet in the high places. Lord, we love you, and we want this for your glory, that we might enjoy your goodness forever. In Christ's name, amen.